Good morning, King's Chapel. So, this is usually the part of the sermon where I or one of the other pastor elders will say, turn in your Bibles to such and such a passage. And then we'd start going through that text together in something we call expository preaching. For those of you who aren't familiar with King's or church in general, expository preaching is the practice of preaching the text and making the focus and the, mes- the focus of the text the focus of the message. At King's Chapel, we do this book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because it forces preachers to preach God's words and God's priorities and not their own. But sometimes there are situations that don't always neatly fit into an expository preaching series. There are topics that are so weighty that addressing them forces us to look across the entire Bible for answers. And this morning, that's what we're going to do. Welcome to our sermon series, Because You Asked. Questions from God's people, answers from God's word. This morning, we're going to be taking on the questions that you asked regarding prayer, which I consider to be one of the most challenging of all the spiritual disciplines. As I was preparing for the sermon, I was thinking about a a scene from Shakespeare's play, Hamlet, or if you have young kids, Lion King, because they're remarkably similar. If you aren't familiar with the play, it begins with the King of Denmark, who is murdered in his sleep by his brother Claudius, who then proceeds to steal both his brother's crown and his wife without any consequence to himself. The ghost of the king then reaches from beyond the grave to contact his still living son, Hamlet, and charges him to expose the treachery and foul murder by Claudius. Later in the play, Claudius finds himself racked with guilt, and he retreats to his chambers to pray. He acknowledges his strong feelings of guilt. He begs for the sweet rains of heaven to cleanse his blood-stained hands. He cries out for divine assistance to pray, and he falls to his knees and closes his eyes in seemingly contrite prayer. So convincing is his prayerfulness that Hamlet actually refuses to kill him when he's given the chance, lest Claudius be reconciled to God in his last moments. But after Hamlet leaves, Claudius opens his eyes, stands up, and mutters, my words fly up, my thoughts remain below. Words without thoughts never to heaven go. That scene's always resonated with me because it seemed to capture how hard it is to truly pray. You can say all the right things. You can dot every theological I and cross every theological T. You can adopt the posture. You can do seemingly everything right and yet never pray. Prayer goes beyond words, doesn't it? There's something ethereal about it, engaging the heart and not just the mind. I've always struggled to pray. Given the choice between Bible study and prayer, Bible study feels more natural to me. In my earlier years, I felt overwhelmed by prayer. Thankfully, I'm not the only one who's ever felt like that. One of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, once wrote concerning prayer, he felt unworthy to pray. And he tried to avoid the topic as much as he could. He confessed that he, was, he struggled to pray in the morning. Even the disciples of Jesus struggled to pray. In Luke 11, 1, the disciples approached Jesus and they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray because they didn't know how. We're in good company if we struggle with prayer. So we're going to delve into that this morning. We're going to be covering a wide swath of Bibles, so buckle up, hang on. We've got three movements we're going to be considering. The protection of prayer, the person of prayer, and the practice of prayer. 
But before we do, let's pray. Lord and God, we're asking for you to be with us this morning. We ask that you'd open up your word to us. Show us beautiful, wonderful things out of your word. Open our eyes and our, to see you and our ears to hear you. And God, I ask that you would be with me as, you, as I preach. Please get me out of the way. Let your word be put on display. We just ask for you to do great and wonderful things with your word this morning. And in your name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to begin with the protection of prayer. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Jeremiah 31, verse 3. Jeremiah 31, verse 3. Be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Now, how does this passage protect our prayer life? Well, let's get into it. For context, Jeremiah 31 is about how the prophet Jeremiah has been warning the people that God's wrath is upon them for their unrepentant sinning, and as a result, their lands would be conquered by the nation of Babylon. But that isn't God's final word to his people. God declares to them that though their sins are grievous, he will not forget them. But the basis for God's faithfulness toward them would not be Israel's merits, but God's magnificent love, a love that the text tells us is an everlasting love. Now, the love of God, it's everlasting in two respects. First, it is everlasting in its duration, meaning that the love of God will continue throughout all of time. From the beginning to the end, the love of God endures. Amen? Many waters cannot quench that love, neither can floods drown it. Song of Solomon 8, 7. Or think of one of the most famous declarations of God's love in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else can be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Think about the story of the Bible and especially the Old Testament. Throughout this book, God's people sin and sin and sin again and again and again, grievously, unthinkably, and yet, for all of their rebellion, God's love never ends. For all of our rebellion, God's love never ends. And this love is everlasting in its duration because that's who God is. Because if God is love and he will never end, his love is an everlasting love. Secondly, it is everlasting in its potency, meaning that the love of God will never fluctuate throughout all of time. From before the foundations of the earth into the halls of eternity, the love of God for his people remains the same, never growing, never fading. It doesn't wax and wane day to day with our obedience and our failings, as if human obedience could add to its flame or human failings could dampen its light. The same love that God showed you at the beginning is the same love he shows you now and will forever and ever, without end. Love that sought us 
and bought us. Love that called us, keeps us. Love that knew us where we are and yet did not leave us there. The unyielding, unsurpassable, unstoppable love of God. And it is everlasting in its potency because that is who God is. Because if God is love and he will never change, then his love is an everlasting love. Now that's all well and good, but this is a sermon on prayer, supposedly. So what does this have to do with prayer? This is the protection for Christian prayer. Think of it as the guardrails on the side of a road, keeping you from going off the cliff. These are the guardrails protecting your prayer life. Because if God's love is an everlasting love, meaning it is unending and unchanging, this means first, God does not love you more for your prayerfulness. And this guards us against legalism in our prayers. You see, it'd be all too easy for me or any of the other pastors to just lay into people for their prayerfulness and try to guilt trip people into praying more. But prayer that's motivated by guilt is no prayer at all. No prayers can grow from such toxic soil. Because when we pray, motivated by guilt, our prayers are less about delighting in God's person and character and entrusting our lives to him, and more about trying to appease him, lest he be angry with you. And that's a wrong view of God, and therefore a wrong view of prayer. In her book, Becoming Free Indeed, Ginger Duggarvuolo from the show 19 Kids and Counting wrote, So much of my uncertainty was because I didn't understand God's character. Instead of thinking of him as a kind creator who wanted me to obey him for my own good and his glory, I primarily thought of him as stern and harsh. I had this idea he'd be disappointed, even angry if I didn't do exactly what he wanted me to do, end quote. Don't our prayers sometimes feel like that? Making sure we check all the right boxes, say the right things, pray as many times as we're supposed to, could the reason be that we don't believe that God actually loves us? Ginger's conception of God led her into spiritual slavery, constantly feeling the need to do more and more and more to make sure that God was happy with her. Is your conception of God leading you into the same place, adding more and more and more prayers just to make sure that God won't stop taking care of you? Family, if more prayerfulness means more love from God, then you don't believe in a God who is love. You just believe he's been bought off. And if anything bad happens to you, it's because you didn't do enough to keep him happy. You didn't pray enough. But if God has loved you with an everlasting love, then I don't pray more so that he loves me more. I pray more because he loves me more. Secondly, if God's love is an everlasting love, meaning it is unending, and unchanging, that means God does not love you less for your prayerlessness. And this guards us against shame in our prayers, and this is a real struggle for people. Sometimes people who tend to struggle with prayer try to justify their struggles by saying, prayer isn't how I connect with God, or I don't need to pray all the time, Sunday's enough for me, or I just, I don't like praying in front of other people, so I can't do it but they're not being honest because the Bible doesn't know any such distinctions. There aren't Bible Christians and prayer warriors. There's no spiritual gift of prayer that's given to one Christian and not another Christian. 
When the Bible talks about prayer, it assumes that prayer is the life of every Christian, not merely the spiritual elites. So why do so many people refuse to try and change? Could it be that we're actually ashamed? Ashamed because we know in our heart that prayer should be a greater part of our life, and it isn't? Ashamed because we long to experience that same sense of joy and peace that other people seem to have when they pray? Ashamed because we're maybe not eloquent enough or have enough knowledge? Ashamed because we don't feel like we can pray when we're struggling with our own sins? I've felt that way. I know I don't pray as much as I ought to. I've often wondered why other people seem so happy when they pray when it's such work for me. Sometimes it's awkward to lead prayers in front of the church. And it's hard to pray for my kids after I lose my temper with them. I can't be the only one, right? But family, if prayerlessness means God loves you less, then you don't believe in a God who's gracious, who meets us in our weaknesses. You have bought into lies of Satan. He delights to portray God as cruel, hard, and miserable. In short, Satan wants nothing more than for you to perceive God as against you. He's been doing this since the garden. But if God has loved us with an everlasting love, then just as the father welcomed the prodigal son home without condition or restrictions, so our heavenly father welcomes the imperfect prayers of his imperfect children, no matter where they begin. Family, before you pray, you have to understand these truths. God has loved you in Christ with an everlasting love. Before the foundation of the world, he entered into a bloody covenant to seek and save his people from their sins, and the same love he showed at the beginning is the same love that he showed on the cross by dying as an atonement for our sins. He did this when we didn't deserve it, when we weren't even looking for a rescue. We call this gospel good news. At this church, we distinguish between religion and gospel. Religion is, I obey, therefore I am saved. Essentially, religion approaches life with the attitude, what do I need to think, say, or do before I am valuable, accepted, or forgiven? Gospel, by contrast, is I am saved, therefore I obey. Meaning that the gospel approaches life with a different attitude. Gospel looks at life and says, in Christ, God has loved me, has forgiven me of my sins, and has made me his own. Therefore, this is what I will think, say, and do. This means there's a world of difference between religious prayers and gospel prayers. Religious prayers seek to curry divine favor. Gospel prayers are given because we have divine favor. Religious prayers seek to establish relationship with God. Gospel prayers enjoy a relationship that's already been established by God. We pray more because God loves us, and because he loves us, we always have a place to begin to pray. Let's look at the next movement, the person of prayer. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew 6, verse 9. Matthew 6, 9. We read this earlier together. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So, what does this passage teach us about the person of prayers? 
Well, for context, in Matthew 6, Jesus is giving his Sermon on the Mount. He's contrasting the kingdom of God with the kingdom of man. And in the kingdom of man, the prayers of the people are ostentatious. They're full of empty words. But in the kingdom of God, the prayers of the people are humble, and they're full of meaning. And in this prayer, Jesus identifies the first and most important part of all Christian prayer, the recipient, who's God himself. There are three things we should see about God from this text. First, we see that God is willing to be approached. Look at the text, our Father. We do not pray to a God who is cold and distant, eternally unknowable and unapproachable. The judge in his court, the king in his castle. We pray to a father of children, a father who is warm in affection, a father who wills that we approach him, who is, as 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, the father of mercies and God of all comfort. And this father, in prayer, has become, as the text says, our father. He is ours, and we are his. He is willing to be approached. Secondly, we see that God is able when approached. Look at the text. Our father in heaven. We do not pray to kings or rulers of earth, the wise and the skilled, the rich or the strong, the one that we pray to is seated in the heavens, crowned with, as 1 Chronicles 29, 11 says, the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Why? For all that is in the heavens and earth is yours. We're not seeking any particular heavenly being. We don't seek for saints long dead, angels, or spirits. The one that we seek is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Ephesians 3. He is, as Psalm 115, 3 says, in the heavens he does all he pleases. Is anything too hard for God? Jeremiah 32, 27. That is the one in heaven that we seek. Earthly fathers can fail, but our Father in heaven has all power and authority to accomplish everything he so intends. God is able when approached. Finally, we see God is worthy to be approached. Look at the text. Hallowed be your name. We pray to a God whose very name is hallowed, made holy, meaning it's set apart and set above to glorious perfection, and it is God's greatest passion that we should know the incalculable worth of who we speak to. The Bible says this, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in might, not one is missing. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Isaiah 40, 25, 26, and 46, 9. And we pray that everyone throughout the world would recognize the hallowed name of God. God is worthy to be approached. So how does this speak to our prayer life? Well, before Jesus taught the people what to pray for, he taught them who to pray to. 
And I believe that recognizing the person of our prayers protects against monotony in our prayer life. Many people wrestle with monotony, the, the you know, being bored in our prayers, just same old, same old, same old sometimes, right? It's evidenced by the sheer number of resources that are available for helping Christians revitalize prayer life. The enormity of the resources is almost as great as their variety. Many of the suggestions for revitalizing prayer have to do with changing the methods of prayer. My Pentecostal friends tell me we revitalize prayers by praying in our private prayer languages in the Spirit. My Anglican friends tell me to use the theologically and poetically rich written prayers of the liturgy, the daily office, or the Book of Common Prayer. Meanwhile, my evangelical friends tell me it's by speaking extemporaneously and personally from the hearts. Other theologians and authors have suggested changing the very forms of our prayers. Some have suggested drawing prayer circles, whatever that is, or going on Jericho marches, or practicing listening prayers and writing down what God tells you. Others suggest things like prayer journals and meditation, prayer rooms or harp and bowl prayers that supposedly mimic the prayers in heaven. Some of these suggestions are helpful, some are simply nonsense, and some are frankly false teaching. But the common denominator that unites all of these is that they are incomplete solutions. The chief problem is not the particular way that we pray, it's that we've forgotten the person to whom we pray. Think about it this way. Husbands and wives, think about the profound knowledge that you have of each other. Seriously, think of something that you know about each other that no one else in the world knows. Those who aren't married, think of your best friend. Think of something you know about them that no one else in this world knows. Okay? That knowledge, that intimacy you have, changes how you speak together, doesn't it? How you eat together how you walk together, even how you fight. You're speaking to the person that you cherish more than anyone in this world, the person that you promised, for those of you who are married, to cherish till death do you part. My point being is you're not just speaking to the average Joe when you spend this time with someone, you're speaking to someone special. And it's not what you do with them that makes an experience with this person special, it's the person who makes the experience special. And if that's the case for sinful human beings like you and me, how much more then should the person of our prayers change our experience with prayer? Family, when was the last time that you thought seriously about who you approach when you pray? When was the last time that you primed your soul with beautiful and profound truths about his nature and character? that you regaled yourself with tales of his mighty sovereignty, or you plumbed the depth of mercy that released your sins forever? When did you last contemplate the wonders of his sacrificial love or lost yourself in the comfort of his unchanging nature? When did we last contemplate the greatness of God? Could it be that the key to revitalizing our prayers isn't methodological. It's theological. Do you know him who demonstrated his love for you 
by dying for your sins and rose from the dead that you might do the same? Do you rejoice in that reality? This is not to say that there won't be dry seasons in our prayer life. Sometimes we are more aware of God's presence and glory than other times. The Psalms are full of such experiences. But the solution in every one of these circumstances is to press into God, who he is, what he's like. It is those who know God the best and cherish the one that they know that enjoy the sweetest times of prayer. Let's look at the next movement together. Let's consider the practice of prayer. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke 5.16. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Luke 5.16. So what does this teach us about the practice of our prayers? Well, for context, in Luke 5, Jesus has begun his mission to the world. He's called his first disciples, and he's begun to display the power and compassion of God to a hurting world. He's prefiguring the restoration that will be enjoyed in the consummated kingdom of God in the new heavens and the new earth. He's healing diseases, and reports about him are spreading rapidly. Great crowds gather to hear him speak and be healed of their diseases. But in the midst of all this teaching and healing, Luke makes it a point to mention that Jesus would withdraw to quiet places to pray. This speaks to the true humanity of Jesus in two powerful ways. First, it reveals that Jesus prays out of physical need. In his divinity, Jesus does not tire. The Bible is clear, Psalm 121.3, God neither slumbers nor sleeps. But in his humanity, Jesus is tired. He's spending countless hours ministering to the hurting. He's healing their wounds. He's preaching the word. People, small aside, preaching is exhausting, okay? It takes work. When my kids nap today, I guarantee I'm going to be napping right next to them. It's going to be a question, who sleeps longer? Actually, no, let's be honest. They're going to wake me up. Um, ministry is hard. Ministry is hard, and in his humanity, Jesus is exhausted. It is essential that we see that Jesus is not just truly God, but he's truly human. With all human limitations, he needs rest and rejuvenation, and that's why he retreats to desolate places to pray. Secondly, it reveals that Jesus prays out of spiritual need. Because when Jesus retreats to these desolate places, he's not just going to stare into the sunset. He's not just going to take a nap. He's not getting out his phone and scrolling through social media. Here's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the like. What does the text tell us? It says he retreats to pray. He was spiritually exhausted. And the one place Jesus would find spiritual rejuvenation was in communion with his Father. You see, the benefits of God are not divorced from the person of God. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way, whatever God has, he is. So meaning God is his attributes. He is his blessings. There is no participation in his blessings 
without a participation in his person. So, for example, if you want the peace of God, you need the God of peace. If you want the strength of God, you need the God of strength. If you want the comfort of God, you need the God of comfort. There is no help from God without an encounter with God. That's what prayer is for. Therefore, when Jesus is spiritually tired, he prays, and he needed it. In his divinity, Jesus never experiences temptation to doubt or fear. Without the incarnation, God the Son does not experience temptation. But in his humanity, Hebrews 4.15 tells us, he is tempted just as we are, yet he overcomes the temptation to sin. He needed spiritual peace, strength, and comfort, and so he would go to his Father, the God of peace, the God of strength, the God of comfort, to pray. So how does this speak into our prayer life? I believe Jesus' practice of prayer was born out of its priority to him. See, in his humanity, he faced physical and spiritual limits. It was essential that he step aside from the daily work to rest and recover in the presence of his Father. A Jesus that didn't pray is a Jesus that wasn't human. Okay? Very important, so track with me on that, okay? A Jesus that didn't pray is a Jesus that wasn't human. Let that sink in for a moment. I'm going to ask what sounds like what's going to be a weird question, okay? Just stay with me. Are there any aliens among us? I'm not talking about people from New Jersey or Chicago Bears fans. Jets fans too, sorry Joe. Um, do we believe we're actually human? Seriously, do we believe that we are humans? But when we constantly justify our prayerlessness, because we just say we're busy, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy, what are we communicating? We're communicating that we aren't human. Because if Jesus prays out of physical and spiritual need, and I don't pray, what's that communicating? Are we less human than the incarnate Jesus? And if life is so hard that Jesus needed to pray, then we need to pray too. The question becomes, how do we do that? How do we pray? I remember reading the late Dr. Tim Keller describing a season of life where he and his wife, Kathy, were just bombarded with crisis after crisis, medical emergency after emergency. And during all of this, Kathy urged her husband to pray with her every single night. This is what she told him. Imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill every night before going to sleep. Imagine that you were told you would never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it some nights? No. It would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget. You would never miss. Well, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of all we're facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We can't let it slip our minds. 
That moment changed everything for the Keller family. They began to hunger for prayer, and as they hungered, they made the time. How many of us see prayer with that same sense of desperation? How many of us see our sins as so lethal, this world as so dangerous, this life as so difficult that we cannot make it without divine assistance? Many of you you were here a couple weeks ago when Rachel and I dedicated our son, Sean. We also told you guys that there was a chance of medical risk for him. It was a 50-50 shot that he would be born with a limited ability to clot blood, almost no immune system. We prayed. We prayed. Our life was busier than it ever had been. But we made the time to pray because the need was that real and we were that scared. We'll do what's important to us. Our son's life was that important to us. So we prayed. And we prayed. A campus missionary I know would describe this added to change this way to his students. He said, imagine you're filling a jar with large rocks, small rocks, and sand. If you fill the jar with the sand and the small rocks first, there's no room for the large ones. But if you begin the, with the large rocks, and then you add the small ones and the sand, they'll naturally find room. We fill the jars of our lives with our greatest priorities, and everything else follows. Is prayer that important to you, or is it something you just try to add in after everything else is already done? Look, I get it. It is easy to put prayer on the back burner. The kids are needy. The house is falling apart. Dinner still needs to be cooked. We still have jobs. And maybe you won't always have time for long sessions of prayer. That's fine. But if prayer is a priority, then we find the time. Let's get real practical here, okay? The prayers can be short, but they can be numerous. One amazing way to pray is by teaching your kids to pray. Model praying for them. Maybe use a prayer book with some pre-written ones to help you. Wake up 10 minutes before the kids do and open your day in prayer. Pray before you go to sleep. Pray when you walk. Pray when you work. Pray when a conversation before conversation starts. Pray as it ends. If you really need a kid-free moment, turn on one eight-minute episode of Bluey and go pray. Because you need it. Okay? You really need it. Because you're human. Because you have limits. Because you have hurts. Because you're scared. Because you hunger because you have no idea how you're gonna make it another day. Because maybe apart from the grace of God, maybe you wanna give up. Maybe you just want things to just end. Family, to be human means you have needs, both physical and spiritual. Prayer is the air we breathe, and some of us are choking right now because we won't open our mouths to breathe. Because we forget we're human. Family, let me end this section with this thought. If Jesus could step away from the work of healing the sick and preaching the word in order to pray, you can step away from the dishes and the laundry and home projects for five minutes. Trust me, they'll still be there.
I cannot get rid of the dishes if I tried. <laughs> Least favorite chore. They will always be there. The world's not coming to an end because you stepped away from the housework for five minutes. Retreating to pray, it's an acknowledgement that we're human. Jesus in his humanity required rest. Jesus in his humanity required prayer. Are we less human than him? That we can suspend our need to rest and our need to pray? As the band comes up, I'd like to close with, with this thought. I get that it's hard to pray. I'm really sympathetic to the challenge of cultivating a strong prayer life when you have young kids. I really get it. I'm not telling you guys to do anything that Rachel and I have been struggling to do, okay? But the ultimate reason I believe that we must pray is because prayer is more than a spiritual discipline issue. Prayer is a gospel issue. Prayer pictures the gospel. I mean, think about the stereotypical prayer position. You're on your knees, right? Hands clasped, head bowed, eyes closed. There is nothing seemingly powerful about this position. When you are in that kind of position, you're putting yourself entirely at the mercy of another person. When you're in this position, you can't do anything. You have to ask for help outside of you. You need a salvation that's outside of you. And you can't compel them in that position. I don't know anyone who gets on their hands and knees, you know, cl you know clasps their hand together, bows their head, close their eyes, and goes up, no, you have to do this for me, and forcing you. I can't force anyone from that position to do anything. Do you just see? When we pray, we are rehearsing the gospel. And I honestly believe that the way you pray is the most honest assessment of what you believe about the gospel. Because show me a Christian who doesn't pray. And I will show you a person who does not believe that he is a sinner, totally incapable of fixing themselves. Show me a Christian who does not pray, and I will show you someone who believes that she is her own savior. Show me a Christian who does not pray, and I will show you someone who does not believe that they need daily grace. Show me a Christian who does not pray, and I will show you a Christian who does not understand the gospel. So let us pray. Pray, knowing that God does not love me more for my prayerfulness, and he does not love me less for my prayerlessness, who loves me not for who I am, but for who he is, gracious and kind, merciful and loving. Pray, not as a task that I take up to seek his favor, but a privilege that I enjoy because I have his favor. Pray not to establish relationship, but to enjoy the communion with God won for us by Jesus. And when we pray, let us pray remembering who it is that we speak to, that our God is willing to be approached. He is able when approached, and he is worthy to be approached. Close your eyes and ask yourself, what is it about God that I find glorious? And why is that beautiful to me? Seriously, everyone, right now, take the time to ask yourself, what is it about God that I find glorious? Why is that beautiful to you? Whether you speak freely, or you read along with ancient prayers, or you write your prayers down, ask yourself, who is it, the God I'm about to speak with? And let that define your experience of prayer, not the way that you pray. And when we pray, let's pray, recognizing that we are human, with physical aches and spiritual hunger, longing for rest, longing for transcendence. Pray like our strength and our help exist outside of us and can only be found in God. 
Pray like the days are long and the world full of trouble. Pray like death is real and sin is hunting. Pray like you're human. Maybe it's been a long time since you prayed like that. Maybe you never have. Whether this is the first step of your journey or 10,000 feet up, this is the time to get serious about it. And your prayer life will only become serious when your walk with God becomes serious. Will you be serious about it now? Maybe you don't know how to begin. Maybe you never have. Well, the Christian faith begins with one amazing truth, as John Newton puts it. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. So go to God and confess your sins and ask him for forgiveness. Your guilt and your shame may feel overwhelming, but there's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. And if you come to him, he will by no means cast you out. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this time we could spend in your word hearing what you would have to say to us. God, we come confessing that prayer is not an easy thing to do. It's humbling, God. And we've all found ways that we've struggled to pray. I know that I have. But I thank you that you're a father who welcomes our prayers. We ask that you please forgive us. And please help us to see prayer as something beautiful and essential that we need every day. Because we need you every day. We're asking for mighty things, God. But we know that you are capable of doing more than we can ask or even think. We come to you now with all of our hurts and our worries, all of the wonders and questions and fears, and we just bring them before you now. We ask that you would lead us in the path that you would have us follow. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.